this is episode number 14 with Shanal Buralal, Senior Portfolio Director from JG Digital Equity Ventures. Welcome to the Masters of Cashflow podcast. My name is Andrew Senduk, a former banker turned tech entrepreneur. And in each episode, I interview the movers and shakers of the venture capital and investment space in Southeast Asia, with the only goal to help you discover how to raise more capital, build better companies, and to give you a better understanding of the people behind the biggest funds in the region. Thank you so much for spending time with me today. Now let's get started. All right, uh, beautiful people, welcome to another episode. I am uh, always excited to meet new and interesting people. And today uh, I have the honor to be uh, in the midst uh, with uh, Shanal Buralal, uh, who I have met through my brother. Uh, we have a mutual contact with my brother. Uh, apparently the story is that you guys sat next to each other in a plane. Uh, so it's really, uh, really cool that we are uh, on this uh, session together now. Uh, interesting thing is that we both started our careers with Deloitte. Uh, you went into investment banking, HSBC, uh, then uh, also got exposure in the startup industry uh, doing Lendo and uh, are active as an angel investor. And currently uh, you are with uh, JG Digital Equity Ventures, where you are senior portfolio director. Uh, Chanel, how's, uh, how's life? Hey, Andrew, great to be here. And thanks so much uh, for the kind introduction. I, I got to tell you, like, I love the story how we met. I mean, getting to meet your brother on a plane, he's, he was so amusing. Uh, he's possibly the only person I've met on a plane from like Hong Kong, Jakarta, wearing a tweed jacket. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he was, he was clearly just bored and he was happy to strike up a conversation. And, and here yeah. we are sort of yeah. five years on. He's, and he's visited my home multiple times. You know, we've seen him in Singapore a lot and he's been a great help to, to us when we look at, you know, opportunities in Indonesia as well. So, yeah, it's, yeah. A, it's a circuitous way of coming to it, but... Yeah, yeah. My brother has three jackets, so that's going to be one, uh, one for books. Uh, <laughs> uh, that's really amazing. Uh, let's, let's, let's dive into it. Uh, JG Summit, big um, conglomerate, and uh, funny thing, of course, like when I was building Arami, uh, also one of the big conglomerates in Indonesia, also invested in us. So let's talk a bit about uh, CPCs, Corporate Venture Capital Arms of Conglomerates. I want to, I want to start with this, right? So Fred Wilson is a partner at Union Square Ventures. And he once said, uh, corporate investing sucks. And Union Square Ventures is a pretty massive uh, fund, uh, yeah. AUM, currently $1.52 billion. Um, he mentioned corporate investing sucks. And uh, through different interviews, he's actually always kind of like bashing corporate investing. And I would love to know, like, what's kind of like your, your view on it? You know, being, being a founder, you, you've raised, you know the investment space, investing yourself, and now being on the, on the corporate side. Like, what is, the, what is the added value that you see uh, as, you know, being now on, on that side of the table? Yeah, it's, it's um, let's be very candid, right? If you're a startup that's super high growth and you don't need any strategic support, right? I think you kind of have a pecking order who you want to talk to. Cause like, if you're a superstar, like you want to be shit hot and you want to be backed by a Silicon Valley VC, right? Like that's kind of top pecking order. You want to be there. Then it's maybe a regional shit hot, well-regarded, you know, high capitalization or high cap- highly capitalized uh, VC and then, and so on and so forth. Right. And corporate VC is something like, it's kind of like a vertical across that whole range, right? Because it depends on the strategic relationship. And um, when I was at Lendo, yeah, to be frank, like corporate VCs, you know, we, we, we engage them, we talk to them, their processes were often slower. Hmm. Um, there was the added requirement to build a strategic plan for that particular partner. Yeah. And that was great in some ways, because it could mean revenue, but it's also just a ton more work, right, to raise for or raise via. So I think it's a question of like, why you want the strategic and what that strategic adds to you. And, I, hmm. and I've got to say, like, so joining JG is kind of interesting because, you know, we wouldn't pretend to say our strategic value is in, you know, helping you go global. That's not our strategic value add, right? Our strategic value add is like saying, hey, look, clearly in the Philippines, we're a pretty impressive partner to work with. And we've done it multiple times with multiple partners. And we've grown a very, you know, uh, impressive stable of startups that we've started to work with in the last couple of years. Hmm. Um, so I think you really want to play to your strategic strengths because then people, of course, will understand how to best operate and partner with you, right? If you're gonna go into a sandbox and be stuck there for six months and eventually maybe you might be able to do a strategic 
investment at some point, that sounds like a pretty harrowing way, a harrowing way to spend time, right? For a CFO or the CEO. Yeah. So I think it's really about how you position and what value you add. And I always think about like that strategic and financial spectrum where a VC is or corporate VC is. And, you know, some VCs, will, corporate VCs will tell you that's purely financial aimed and that's great. Um, and some will tell you that really heavily strategic, almost like corp dev, right? We're probably somewhere in the middle. Like we always want to look at financial returns. We do a full analysis. Uh, but at the same time, we kind of want to play to our strengths, right? You know, if we're looking at a, at a startup, we want to be able to add value to that startup, right? Um, as much as the other around the startup wants to extract value from us, right? Uh, it's, it's kind of a two-way street. So that's how I think about it. Um, if it's just money, I think it's hard to compete on just money, right? Ultimately. Mm. Mm. And, and it's a good point, right? So even, uh, let's say in your case, uh, you, you both look at, the, the financial side, of course, when you look at the strategic side, right? So two, two important elements. Oftentimes when you talk about CVCs, you know, corporate venture arms, the financial part is sometimes difficult to justify. And what, I, what do I mean by that? I mean by that, that, you know, corporate conglomerates, corporates, they usually have very healthy P&L, right? And from that P&L, from the, from the balance sheet, they've started to invest in high-risk, ventures. So financially speaking, that oftentimes is maybe a bit of tension between that uh, PL of, let's say, the, the CPC, the, the venture arm, and the investments that they do versus the, the core business. How do you deal with that, that tension between the two? Because of course, there's a, there's a whole different timeline and return. Yeah. yeah. That and look, I mean, Let's take the JG Group as a great, discrete, distinct example. Hey, we've got a, a probably like a beta of one type market, right? In terms mm -hmm. of all the businesses that we're in. So, you know, URC, the biggest food production manufacturing company in the Philippines. You've got Robinson's Land, Robinson's Bank. You've got, you know, associated companies with the Gokkenway Group, Robinson's Retail, your Super Pacific, mm -hmm. Petrochem's business, you know, relatively mature businesses in many cases with the exception of Cebu Pacific which is probably more recent but even that's not super recent anymore right um, yeah. uh, so look I think they are obviously distinct culturally and therefore you need to make sure you set up your governance in such a way that allows you to operate as a CVC and effectively as a CVC right and so what does that mean in our case we set up a fund in Singapore uh, we have an IC that is constituted of both external parties to the corporate meaning to say rather you know, non-family members as part of the IC who are participating in the group, uh, as well as uh, members of the, the family in that corporate sort of environment, right? And you have to have a, dis you know, distinguish why you're doing what you're doing. I think that's probably the fundamental point. Like, why are you in that business, right? Why, why are you investing in startups? You know, a lot of these corporates could just as easily take treasury capital and put it into a bunch yeah. of different VCs. Yeah. Right. That's a yeah. totally possible yeah. rather than saying let's set it up. Right. And, and so if you can elicit that strategic reason and then you can take that risk that allows you to grow that business unit, right. The commensurate amount of risk, because then you know that, Hey, I'm building this because I want to see innovation. I'm building this because I want to be part of the, you know, uh, let's say a massive digitization trend, or I'm building this because we want to see you know, significant capital gains in some of our uh, external capital, but we need to make sure it's well managed and well administered in comfort in keeping with group norms, right? Because you can't just outsource that part of it. Yeah. So I think if you can you can elicit that, you can then create an IC that is structured to invest or at least to govern on that basis, and then you obviously direct the fund and its 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 own governance and its own standards to meet those objectives, right? Ultimately. So I, I think it's not particularly hard. I, you know, I've got to say in, in JG, I've not sensed that tension between old and new. I see. I think there's other bits of tension, but yeah. that's not one of the things that we face a challenge with yeah. because they're very distinct. It's just like, hey, this is a VC. That's a corporate yeah, VC. Yeah, so we yeah. have to have a high risk tolerance. Yeah, I guess I remember like in, in Indonesia, there were a couple of, of corporate, corporate VCs who were um, investing heavily, right? And then they, of course, did not understand the... Uh, the growth at all costs type of season where they were pouring in millions and millions of dollars. And uh, eventually the traditional businesses, they knock on the door of the CBC and it's like, okay, guys, I don't know what you guys are doing, but you're burning like $10 million a month. Like if we don't do that, you know, so like, yeah. like, there's a big clash between, uh, yeah, between what the traditionals expected maybe and also the timing in which they expected to return versus the reality of the business, you know, of the tech. Were those situations where they're also corporate building 
or venture building. Uh, they were also doing that. Yeah. yeah. So in our case, we don't uh, as a as a VC firm, as a corporate VC firm. So we really just invest. I think that is a different story. Like if you're building a venture and you're trying to call, you know, I don't know, maybe you're Gcash and you're trying to call capital from parent co's, right? And you're saying mm-hmm. I need another fifty million dollars to grow. I need a hundred million dollars to grow. Yeah, yeah. That's not kind of it's not kind of what we're doing, right? So from that perspective, it's really it's a capital allocation story, and then it's a question of supporting those companies in growth. And yeah. obviously, if we can support future fundraisers, we will. Yeah. Uh, where it makes sense to. Yeah. And and uh, traditional VCs, of course, they always have an LP structure, right? That 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 pumping the money into the fund. Uh, with uh, with JG, uh, with you guys, it's going to be a bit different, right? Because you guys just invest from the balance sheet, or how, how is it kind of structured from a fund perspective? Yeah. So actually, we are a a fund based out of Singapore, and we call capital as required when we make an investment. Not dissimilar to what a traditional VC would do; they'd go to the LPs and call capital. Yeah. Right on on each investment or on a you know a expectation of a certain number of investments coming through in the next twelve months. So actually, a very similar structure. Very similar. And is there still also a um, let's say an expected return on that on that capital that's being being dropped out? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we we have a target IRR of twenty percent, okay. um, and then we have an MOIC target of two and a half times for our fund. And what was the MOIC target? Two and a half. Two and a half times. How do you calculate it? What is it? MOIC. Multiple and invested cash. So it just means like if I put in $100 committed, how much do I get out at the end of it? Wow. It, it doesn't matter on the timing and cash flow. So IRR, of course, is impacted by the timing and cash flows. Yeah. So we might call money, you know, 12 months, we might be calling a couple of million dollars. And the next 12 months, we might call $10 million. And the last month, we might call whatever amount, right? Last year. So your IRRs will be impacted by the timing and cash flows and whenever your exits occur. Yeah. Whereas the MOIC is perhaps the simplistic way of looking at like, you know, dollar for dollar, how much money do I make Yeah. overall? Now, people use kind of both in you know, different ways and you kind of tend to refer to both in, in VC. And there's also a timeline linked to that. So, for example, like if the cash drops from headquarters, they just say, okay, we're going to commit it now for, I don't know, 12 months, 24 months or, or even longer period. So our fund life is not, we've, we're sort of an evergreen fund, but we measure ourselves across the sort of fund cycle, right? Let's call it, which is similar to our competitors, five-year investing period and you know, five-year sort of, let's call it a harvest period, right? So 10 years total fund life. Uh, as to the when the funds drop, it's actually a, a committed amount of capital that they, they talk to, and then we draw on that committed capital. So the public announcement is $50 million of the committed capital to this fund. Um, with you know the ability to obviously add more because there's a single LP right as yeah. is strategically required and yeah. either that or you pair up with other investing groups within the group because we're not the only part of capital there's a corporate in its own right there are other entities in their own right which can also use their own balance sheet to invest right so in case of large transactions that might happen too and are you also uh, investing in funds as well from from like a fund of fund type of investment yeah so we we. It's probably prior to my arrival, we made a couple of different fund investments, three in fact, and then we subsequently made a single additional fund investment since my arrival last January. Mm-hmm. So we we tend to, it's not a core part of strategy. Our mandate allows us to invest 20% of our capital into funds, uh, but it's not a core part of it. I'd say that the funds we have invested in have you know, long-standing relationships with us, with the group. Yeah. We see strategic value in their portfolio to look at the Philippines, um, and we kind of continue to see a lot of value from just learning from them, working with them, liaising with them, being their partners for Philippines, right? So that's how we look at the fund investments. It's not actually specifically a targeted capital fund return type of structure. We're not sitting there saying, you know, they better meet their 12% or 15% or 18% yeah, yeah, yeah. mark, right? That's yeah. important, but actually the strategic side is more important than the fund side. Yeah, so I think that's a whole different pressure as well. Like then if you look at the traditional uh, LPs and traditional way that if you see funds work, right? And um, um, what is what is interesting now, I mean, if you look at corporate investing of the last 10 years, getting a bit more quote-unquote mainstream, you know, more guys getting into it. How do you see the CBC landscape evolving say, in the coming five years in uh, Southeast Asia? If you look at investing in general, right? half of the total VC investments is actually in the US. And then the rest of the deals, you know, of the, to say 250 billion, uh, 250 billion US dollars that was invested in 2019, like half of it, 130 million was actually in the US and the rest scattered around the world. 
with Southeast Asia, of course, becoming one of the new attractions of, uh, of investing, uh, what's kind of like your view on corporate investments, corporate VCs uh, popping up and developing in the coming, let's say, five to 10 years? I was just trying to kind of search, and I, I couldn't find it before we spoke, but you know, if you look at corporate VC as a percentage of total venture capital, it's, it's kind of gone in a sort of straight line up, right? It's increasingly important to the total amount of capital deployed. I don't think that's just um, per chance, and I don't think it's just SoftBank, right? I think it's like you know, it's 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 across the board, and you see yeah. people like C just set up a billion dollar fund for you know, for example, as a as another example. There's like a lot of these big uh, digital kind of companies or tech companies that also set up their own venture arms with yeah. large amounts of committed capital. Yeah. So my perspective is that the I think the need for a corporate VC will differ depending on the company, right? And mm-hmm. I think. What does that mean? It's like, I, I think there's a lot of value in having your own corporate VC from the perspective of bringing innovation from outside in, right? Yeah. And more so than sort of, let's just kind of work with three accelerators, put some money in and, you know, let's get the latest batch of, yeah. no disrespect to them, the plug and play and the YC Combinator, whatever, yeah, yeah, startups yeah. to come through. And that is very powerful, by the way. That, those, those ecosystems are fantastic, but it's not quite the same as having people who really understand your inside business really well and saying, look, these are our strategic assets, what can we do? And so I think thinking about VC from a uh, corporate VC from that sort of strategic perspective will become increasingly important because you're going to be competing for deals, right? And if you can't explain what your value proposition is, if you're just money going after transactions, then you may not be that interesting to me. Here's a good example of this. Like, so we just did a transaction that was announced earlier this year in Time Bank. Okay, this is a South African digital bank. And we participated alongside ARC, which is an existing investor, South African-based, uh, uh, and a uh, and APIS, which is a you know uh, a very well-regarded growth stage investor, uh, UK-based and, and global in nature. Very impressive uh, investors in their own right. But you know, we when we looked at it, we said, okay, this is a great company, and we think that the strategic assets they use to grow their customer footprint to 2.8 million customers in 18 months in South Africa is actually very similar to our strategic assets in the Philippines. And so when we were approached and we heard about them and we started discussing with them, it became increasingly apparent that this would be a really interesting partner for us. And so from a venture side, we did the due diligence, say yes, we'd like to invest. And then at the same time, there's a joint venture process that we ran uh, concurrently to say like, hey, what would a joint venture look like in the Philippines as well? Mm. Lo and behold, you know, six months of sweat, blood, tears, and probably just the sweat really, but you know, like a lot of work. We've got a great joint venture deal and investment into this amazing company that we hope to launch a digital bank with in the Philippines. So that's here's an example of like a corporate VC really doing what I think it should be doing, um, adding immense value to the overall group, let's call mm-hmm. it, um, by understanding the strategic lens of the assets that the group has, right? So that's how I would think about the framework for where the relevance lies in 10 years' time, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's solid. That's solid. So it actually means that even uh, you guys are investing outside of the Philippines as well. You could you could invest anywhere as long as maybe yeah. at the long run or midterm you could you could leverage it in in Southeast Asia in the Philippines. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, we tend to focus on Southeast Asia. To be frank, Andrew, like it's it's difficult for us with our small team to kind of go well beyond that from a scouting yeah. standpoint. So we might work with partners who help bring us transactions or our VC network who says, hey have a look at this other company that could be interesting. We want to come to Southeast Asia, but, you know, to be frank, Southeast, if somebody's coming new to Southeast Asia from the US or from Europe, it's unlikely to be the case that Philippines is their first port of call. Yeah. Right. So they, they might be a partner for us in a um, vendor type relationship, and then we might invest in the future or something like that. But it's usually the case they're in Singapore, they're in Indonesia, and then they might want to go elsewhere. So that's kind of what we're seeing. Exactly. Exactly. Hey, so um, what I would like to know from you, uh, I mean, you're active as an angel investor. You, you've been on, uh, on the banking side. I mean, uh, money has always been around you in that sense, you know, investing money or dealing, dealing doing big deals there. Um, where is it? Where is, where is it? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Ran, I wish it was still here. <laughs> and, and, now, and now managing money, now managing money for a corporate to invest in, in, in good deals, right? Which eventually would also give a good ROI. Uh, or NYC. 
You mentioned finding, you mentioned before one of your answers you were talking about, yeah, we need to find the good deals, right? So we need to compete. We need to compete for good deals. So, so I think there's like two things, right? One is finding, finding the fundable startups, finding the right startups, right? And then number two is like competing with them because the pond, the pond that, of course, in South Asia that you are fishing in as an investor is also not limited, right? It's, 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 it's a limited pond. I mean, it's not, it's not super huge. And within that pond, there are a few, a few fish which are, which are fat, which are, which are nice, and they have high potential to grow. Uh, but there's more, there's more fishermen there on the shores. How do, you, how do you compete for deals? I think number one, it would be how do you sort good deals, the big fat fish? And how do, you, how do you win the deals? How do you compete with them? Yeah, uh, both good questions. So I think from a sourcing standpoint, you know, I think every VC will tell you that it's a whole mix of between like personal networks, origination sort of channels of your own. Uh, I'm based in Singapore, for example, for that purpose. I have my colleagues based in the Philippines. The family themselves, the Gokunway group, are incredibly well networked um, mm-hmm. as well as you can imagine. And so from a sourcing standpoint, I'd say it's a whole plethora of different sources, right? It's our own personal networks coupled with, you know, let's call it group relationships, yeah. uh, coupled with all the other VCs we talk to here who want to potentially participate or want us to participate in transaction because it's of strategic relevance to that particular startup, right? So the way we like to position ourselves is kind of where we want to be your preferred partner, I suppose, if you're looking at transactions, right? If you're a, a deal partner or a deal broker, or in fact, more likely a VC, um, we want to be your preferred partner to look at things that we can add value in the Philippines. And then what happens, you, you, you sort of come up the pecking order of people they want to talk to. And when you get known for doing transactions and being supportive of companies, you get, you kind of build your pecking order, right? Like, you know, yeah. you, you're sort of, you want to be that first call, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think, so I think from a deal sourcing standpoint, that's not different to others. I think the difference is perhaps that we do spend a bit of time now, more so now than perhaps when I first started, thinking about the thematics that are going to drive our group overall and then sourcing transactions for those particular opportunities. So, you know, that might mean, you know, looking at, you know, insure tech companies that sit above our digital bank initiative or looking at API exchange networks that could support us as we link in and plug into the ecosystem of fintech or, you know, social commerce that could be enabled by some of our media assets or whatever it might be. Right. So, so there's, those are thesis driven type investments, which I think, will become an increasingly important part of our group as we sort of all, I, I, I basically say, as we come up the maturity curve of understanding exactly those, those problem statements and where there's appetite to, to invest to solve them, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's on the deal sourcing side. How do you compete? I mean, I, I, like, I think you, again, you, let me put myself back into my position as lender, right? Actually, it was bloody hard raising money when I was there, but that's a whole separate conversation, not for this call. But, you know, like, I think the, the important thing is to build relationships with the founders, right? And mm. to understand what they're going through. Yeah. And so some of that empathy of understanding how, you know, going through a raise, running the process, seeing what strategic value you can truly add to their business, right? Because ultimately it's a pretty bumpy, lonely, chaotic ride on the other side of the fence, right? And if you have yeah. enough empathy to understand that, you may not spend your entire time going, here's a 400 list of, you know, a 400 item list of questions for my DD. Yeah. Like, you know, that might not be, you know, a great use of a founder's time if they're super busy trying to really just build their business. So I think having that level of empathy to say, hey, what's really important in driving this business and what's really important to that founder or that founding team, mm-hmm. uh, I think helps build you credibility as well, right? So I, I think that's important. I think the other thing is, to my point earlier, it's like, actually, if you can be in a position where you don't compete because you're the preferred partner and or you know, you're sort of everyone's friend, right? Uh, yeah. I think it's really important. So we try and use a combination of those three yeah. factors. Um, and then just don't waste people's time, right? Like it's, yeah. if you know, it's not something interesting. Don't, don't go too far down the road, right? Yeah, so I think to, 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 to zoom in that answer, actually, the, the red line would be relationship, right? Relationship on yeah, yeah, the yeah. system. Uh, I think also with fellow investors, for sure with entrepreneurs. So they, they kind of like that you are, on their speed up. I mean, you're the one that yeah. they like if they need money. That that totally makes sense, man. That totally makes sense. Yeah, raising money is not always uh, it's not always easy, right? And um, I think for startups, it's it's interesting because I think for startups, depending on what their cash consumption is and how high high their needs are, uh, they're fighting to get in front of the right investors. But at the same time, the investors are also fighting to to sit yeah. across the right entrepreneurs as well, right? It's, it's the same type of competing in that sense that, that they're going through. 
having been in the investment game uh, as yourself, right? What do you think makes makes a good investor? How would you say? Because you see a lot of pitch decks. You talk to a lot of entrepreneurs. If there's a the major piece of gut feeling. There's of course we've got the Excel sheet. What would you What would you say that are the three main characters or three main topics that you look at um, before you move to the next stage with any type of deal, whether it's angel or whether it's as a CPC? It's a good question. Uh, I mean, like if you look at the, the, the team you're going to invest in, like everyone talks about this, but this idea of integrity, trustworthiness, it sounds trivial, yeah. but like it's really, really important. Like if you don't sense that you're trusting the data that comes out of somebody, if somebody's giving you data that's really embellished and you're like, guys, like I need the real data or, you know, mm. please can you kind of clean it up to provide me with this number because that's just a more true reflection. Like that sort of starts adding, a bit, you know, sort of red flags. You're like, you're not getting a clean perspective on the company, right? And you don't don't trust what you're hearing. So I think that's a big question. And that's really hard to kind of objectively assess, to be honest, Andrew. Like, I couldn't tell you. I don't know if it's a sense or yeah. through all the conversations you and I have through our dealings with people every day over, you know, 50 years or whatever, 40 years yeah. of, 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 of your sort of being. I don't know whatever that might entail, but I think that's that's one aspect of it. I look for a real subject matter expertise, personally. I think it's really important to us, particularly when we think about engaging with a corporate like ours. Um, And and that's not to say that you can't be a young founder building something new. It's just that if you're a young founder building something new, I've seen some incredible young founders building something new who are incredibly well-versed in their subject of interest. And so they know every stat, they know every data point, they know the players, they know the people, they understand the problem statements. And so having that depth of knowledge is really important in my view. And it sounds obvious again, but you'll find that sometimes that people haven't actually double clicked on a lot of important data points before they sort of kind of gone flying with their business idea or whatever it might be, right? So having that expertise is helpful. Um, and I think it, it kind of a sense, this is a really interesting nuance because I saw this a lot, which is this kind of, this balance between product sensibility and unit economics. Mm. right it's a it's a really hard thing and by the way not everyone you know you'd expect a team to be able to deliver on this one particularly because it's like you want people to really understand like what customers need and can understand how to build a product team and product organization which by the way is like i always think of it as kind of this most difficult role to hire for and if you can read dozens of books and products and yeah you'll still find it's it's like it's kind of like a mythical creature in some ways you know for that, that ultimate product manager um, but they're so powerful and so critical to the organization in terms of keeping it on, you know, true and tested roles and making sure that something drives to completion, understand where the customer is, yeah. they can really communicate and talk to everyone in the organization. Coupled with the financial acumen to be able to understand if this is a profitable endeavor or not. Yeah. And that becomes the, the, the challenge, I think. Um, so I think that's really important. So being able to be on top of your numbers, understand what those numbers mean. Uh, is really uh, something we look for as well. So I think this, those three factors are probably the, the principal factors and everything else kind of feeds off of that, right? Yeah, I, I love that because you started actually more on personality, right? Like this integrity and, you know, founders being being very transparent with their numbers and not, not blowing things up, which reminds me a bit of, well, I think one, uh, we work, uh, two, uh, looking coffee. Uh, there's a lot of, high growth startups uh, that showed quote unquote the right numbers you know that became uh, we work a 47 billion dollar company uh, looking multi-billion dollar company as well and which eventually were not as big as they presented they were they were you know where which i find so interesting because the investors behind these companies are the biggest investors in the industry and I bet that they would also be looking for integrity in entrepreneurs. I bet they would also be looking for right, right PL, right unit economics. What, what, what do you think went wrong? What do you think went wrong? Because I think the, the, the topic of greed and the topic of focus on focusing on ROI is of course, is of course a, a thing which kind of like circulates a bit in the investment space, in the PC space, because everyone wants high ROI, everyone's pushing for high growth. But there's a, there's yeah. a, there's a tension. You know what I mean? I mean, uh, everyone. Yeah, I hear you. There's a, like, there's like a disconnect, right? You're like yeah. anything. Everything I said is not completely novel, right? Like most people would say the same, right? Or similar combination, maybe different yeah. weightings, right? 
And so I don't think that's the, the, the critical point. Look, I think, I think it's easy to get caught up, right? I think it's easy to kind of look forward and, and extrapolate. And we've all built spreadsheets that sort of show 100% compound growth until 10 years, right? And that looks amazing. So if you realize that's just completely fanciful and, and it's hard. I mean, how many pitch decks have I received that said $100 million revenues in five years or four years? There's only a handful of companies that have done that really from initiation to one to $100 million in ARR, right? And so like, I think it's this, you, you get this appreciation of what's real, what's not real. I think that's one part, but... You know, and, I'm, and I, I was just joking with somebody else where bullshit becomes reality in some cases because there are some businesses that can turn around new economics at sufficient scale, right? Mm-hmm. Because you start getting enough bargaining power. So there's a, a belief structure that if you can break out and you can create something that, you know, problems get resolved with enough capital and enough scale, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I think that is a, it's a possibility, but that needs to be examined closely. I think that's the best way to put it. And I think it's very easy if you're part of an investing group to kind of get carried away by the, the forward-looking curve, right? And yeah. think, okay, if it's extrapolate this forever. But um, look, there's a lot of companies that can grow very fast and maybe you know some of us will miss some of them because we don't necessarily, I might be a bit more cynical than, than, than needed in this space, right? So yeah, um, I, I think it just depends, I guess. I, I don't have a great answer for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I think it's always an interesting, interesting attention, I think, for any founder because they would, compare themselves with the Grab and with the Gojek and uh, with the Travelocas and the Tokopedias, where uh, I think even from an investor perspective, investors, investors would say, okay, where's, uh, how fast are you growing now? Okay, I grow, I don't know, 100% per month. Okay, how can you make it 300%, right? So there's always going to be a drive from investors to, to grow faster and faster. And I wonder, like, even if, uh, if the money comes from a, a CVC, from a corporate venture arm, um, where, yes, I mean, financials, matter as well uh, strategic matters as well but yeah even as an investor you would also be be pushing to grow harder or how do you how do you look at that yeah yeah yeah. we definitely do push to grow harder but we probably aren't the most aggressive person in the room okay that's probably right to say so we definitely do because ultimately we want to see these companies succeed and momentum does help companies succeed right so you it's, it's a small things like you know this as well because you're in a sales organization or your business is kind of growing and you're getting more, you know, you're getting more momentum, yeah. whether you have network impact or whether you have marketplace impact or you have something else and you're just B2B, yeah. like that momentum kind of feeds on itself. Yeah. Organization feels better when it makes a big sale, when it's made a big sale, it can hire more people yeah. to deliver upon that. You can get better service. You know, you can then, you know, sell more. So like speed and momentum matter a lot in this game, right? Yeah. Um, and then you, you, you have your pickings of who you hire. You have the pickings of the, you know, the brand that allows you to do all these things and the capital raising that therefore comes with it. So it, it's kind of like a self-feeding mechanism in some ways that yeah. you have to push for growth in many ways because if you don't, you're just going to be stuck in this kind of um, linear sort of growth rate, which is great for some companies, by the way. It's just a bit of a risk sometimes when you have a lot of innovation around you because companies can easily sort of move up the total fall ahead of yours, right? So yeah. I think speed is really important. Yeah, I totally agree. Totally agree. Um, I think that there will always be kind of like a, a tension within the startup on, you know, uh, pushing every day on growth versus the getting your product market fit optimal and then uh, growing system in a sustainable way, I think, because th- those two are not per se the same. Uh, yeah. So we both yeah. know it. I mean, it's not. Yeah. But that's, uh, that's a challenging part. Um, you've been an entrepreneur, you've been an investor. Uh, you see a lot of both uh, pedigrees, uh, you know, talk about entrepreneurs, talk about other investors. Um, what would you say, what would you say if, if someone wanted to become, become an investor, right? Yeah. Uh, what would make my? <laughs> yeah, what does it take to make? What does it take to make it? Is that what you said? Yeah. Yeah. yeah like my path is super unconventional, I suppose. Right. You know, going from big banking, um, running a business in Indonesia for CLSA, for example. I went back to school. I went to MIT to do what I always joke is the old man's MBA, right? Or the old person's MBA, which is Stone Fellows program there, which is a phenomenal program really great time it allowed me so much uh, opportunity to learn about you know what's happening in the tech world but you know I then went into that route where I said you know I went to a company called EFL which was spun out by a professor at Harvard Kennedy School called Asim Khwaja you know amazing guy super supportive and 
I was actually looking at setting up my own startup at that time. And he gave me the opportunity to say, look, why don't you come to the inside and learn how it's all done and speak to Jared Miller, who was the CEO at the time. I came out to Singapore to run Asia and Africa. So I saw commercial B2B. And we were acquired by Lendo and I became CFO. Yeah. And from Lendo, I came to JG Dev because I'd done a transaction with Jojo Malolos, who is actually our CEO at JG Dev, right? Yeah. And CEO of another business unit called Davi. Again, a fintech veteran, really experienced guy, super nice. But again, it's kind of relationships you build along the way that kind of guide you to the path you're in, right? In some, mm-hmm. in some cases. So mine is a very unconventional path. I guess, I think there's a couple of insights. One is, I think operational experience is super valuable for an investor, right? And I think that that's not true everywhere. I think the latest stats in the US are sort of 50-50 between financial investors and, and those that have been operators previously. And the data that I read was a research paper in 2018, 2019 said that, that outcomes are actually not discernibly different between the financial investor-led companies and the um, operating partner type led uh, VCs. So today the data isn't kind of out there, but I think it gives you a tremendous amount of uh, credibility when you can talk to a investee company on their terms, Yeah, knowing what it's like to go, crap, how is it to hire? Oh my God, you're about to run out of money in 12 weeks time. What do we can, what can we do? Yeah. Um, I'm struggling to hire products. I'm doing this, doing that, and that. I think there's a lot of value in having that understanding so that you as an investor can evaluate whether startup truly is right and what you might be able to do to help them as well so what's the advice i think having a really good understanding of what it takes to put risk on is really important and so i i I've, this is a pet peeve of mine when we have people to interview here or elsewhere and i meet and like i want to do this and they're like have you made an investment before no i'm like that's I don't really get it. Like you don't even need to put that much money to play nowadays in your personal pocket to be able yeah. to invest in an yeah. angel group or in a you know, local founder or whoever it might be. Like, but once you've gone through the process, you know what it's like to kind of look at docs, raise docs. You know, what does it take to kind of help that person, you know, make a hire or talk about them on LinkedIn or whatever it might be, you know, like be involved, right? Somehow mm-hmm. or another. I think that's a critical component in my perspective. Um, a second is, I think you can come to this game with different lenses, but I, I think the financial background is a is a kind of prerequisite in my personal perspective. Like yeah. understanding numbers, like so you you know you can't you can be trained in this by the way internally, of course, and that's okay if you can come in through a graduate program or something like that, which is rare as you probably know in VC world. But you know you can be trained in this, but like understanding how cap tables work or understand how to build a model, even if it's not a DCF model, of course, because no one needs that in VC world most of the time, but you know, when you think about like multiples and market and yeah. where that sensibility lies, like you just got to be kind of comfortable with that because it's, it's, we're often too thin a team to really train people in basic financial 101, right? So mm. from our side, like having that is, is a prerequisite. Um, and I wouldn't necessarily um, say it's particularly high bar, but it's something you just got to get a work through, right? Um, and the final one is like, try and have a point of view. Because when you speak to people and say, uh, you know, if you're interviewing or whatever that you see and they say, what's your top company or what space are you interested in and why? Like you need to have a view as to what you're looking at and why, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and what investments you've made or what you thought may have made a good investment elsewhere and what the thesis is behind it. So I think just having a point of view on these things is really critical too. Yeah. And with those combination of things, you'd be in a better place, right? And obviously the VC world is a, it's a very highly networked world, right? So getting to meet some of these people is, is the paramount factor here. Yeah, yeah. Relationships. I think we come back to relationships again, I think, as well. Correct, correct. Yeah. Hey, uh, I was talking to a friend of mine, uh, PE professional for the last, I don't know, 15 plus years, and he was saying um, good founders are not per se good investors and good investors are not per se good founders. So I see, I see some shift back and forth. You know, one is an entrepreneur, become an investor like yourself, and then others maybe they they once were partnered in the VC firm and they start to do entrepreneur on themselves as well. What's kind of like your view? I mean, you've been both as well. Uh, what are the kind of like the? Well, it's, it's, to be fair, like I've never been an entrepreneur in my own right. I've never set up that business in my own right. So I'm an investor in multiple businesses. I own minority stakes and significant minority stakes in a couple of businesses that you know are kind of dear to me, but. It's not like I've had to kind of go from scratch and set up anything on my own, let's be honest, right? So I've been working in these sort of entrepreneurial environments, let's put it that way. Do founders make good investors? In other words, it's different skills, right? You're right. I think that's fair to say. I don't think it's a given that as a founder, you make a great investor. But I think 
I, I think there's, again, a great deal of benefit that comes from being a decent founder with a great network that's built something that has the exposure to understanding what it's like, knows what it means to drive product development, knows what it's like to kind of run it, you know, think about financing, knows what it's like to connect into the ecosystem to support their own growth, et cetera. There's a really good, valuable trait as an investor as well, right? Now, an investing skill in PE specifically is very different, I think, because that's a very technical space for investments, whereas VC is not as technical. Meaning, you know, look at, you know, if your, if your friend showed you the, the PE model that they used for, you know, sources and uses of cash and the, and the financial model they built underneath it, when you're working on operating margins of 10%, like that's a, you know, probably 200 page, you know, 200 line model with, yeah. you know, all sorts of assumptions made. And, you know, it's really critically you know, important that you get every part of that right. So it's a, it's, a, it's a very technical role in that sense in many cases mm-hmm. beyond the origination, which is the, you know, getting to know the founder or the family or whoever it is you're trying to buy the deal, you know, trying to do a deal with. So I'd say it's slightly different. In the VC world, I don't think that's as critical as component, like having the ability to see where the future is, trying to understand what the market's trending, having a good, you know, um, feel of the ground where people are moving towards what market needs and customer pain points, right? Actually, a founder is often very well suited to do that. Um, assuming they are good at that, right? Yeah. But it may not be the case that they, it's not obvious that they have to be, you know, they, they'd be the best or most preferred investor. Yeah. Uh, but certainly I think they, they they check a lot of boxes immediately. Yeah. It's interesting that you mentioned the difference between the PE and the VC, uh, VC world. I think uh, the PE in that sense is much more, uh, there's of course quote unquote less risk in that, right? It's a much more, the business had already proved itself, right? So it's a different game, whether yeah. inside it's much more a quote-unquote risk that you're taking, right? You're investing in the people and in the concepts which are not yet proven on a on scale, on scale, right? Are there, uh, in, you know, in your investment, let's say in your investment career specifically, are there any deals that you that you could share that you're, you know, very that you're very proud of? Let's say one of the deal that you're most proud of, or maybe the company that you supported from the beginning. And uh, they have maybe reached a certain milestone that you've been, uh, uh, yeah, part of part of the journey. Could be um, personal, or it could be as a as a. As so a, I'll mention two transactions, and neither of them got to the stage of growth where we'd like them to be just yet, because it's only very recent. But yeah. one is Gajigesa, which is a, 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 um, a company that does early wage access. Um, set up by one of my former colleagues, Martina Marinowska, and her husband, Vidit Agarwal. Super nice guys, right? Um, Vidit was like Uber number one employee in Southeast Asia. Martina was an incredible product force at Lendo. And they set up this early wage access business just last year, and they've already raised $2.65 million. They, they're going gangbusters. They, you know, have added a lot of customers in the last six months. And so super pleased for them. And they're you know, a really powerful husband-wife team, which is always, yeah, yeah. you know, an interesting dynamic as well, which I, I'm super pleased to see them being, you know, out there and being successful. And so I think they will they will do great. I'm super happy about that. Um, so I, I invest as an angel there. Yeah. Um, I think the biggest deal we've done is 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 clearly time, and that's very recent, right? So I, I don't have enough data to tell you like, you know, where is where is it going today? But look, the round we participated in ended up being a 110 million dollar committed you know, round, right? Wow. And so. This is a really sizable investment for a business that has a capacity to be, you know, multitude larger than it is today. And it already has 2.8 million customers in South Africa. And oh, yeah. we're building something for them in, in the Philippines. And it'll be, you know, really fascinating to watch the opportunity to see them grow. So really pleased about that transaction. And actually really pleased about how the group took on the risk. Because again, working with a joint venture partner, yeah. building something together is always interesting, right? It's always like you're learning about each other through the process. Yeah. But that was really fun. Um, Great team overall. And again, just super high quality um, entrepreneurs, right? And, and management team. Yeah. Um, so that's probably the, the two that I think stand out most and perhaps a recency bias to that as well. That is, uh, that is so exciting, man. That is so exciting. And if you talk about that, that deal, right? That, that hundred plus million dollar deal where you were part of uh, the round, could you like walk me through a bit like, you know, high level, like where kind of the stage, how long did it take to close the round? How long was it, you know, to date the founder yeah. kind of like see a bit on what what the what what meat you have you know uh, as a potential investment how did that go like how long did the whole process take yeah so we were introduced last summer um and in that process it was really clear that their strategic relationships were strong in, in terms of 
you know, how they came to access us specifically. They're targeted working with partners that had similar strategic assets, including retail, bank license, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, so they were obviously astute to, to work on their strengths and their capacity and capabilities and we sort of pretty much outreach to, to us as an investment team saying they wanted to kind of look at opportunities to work with us, right? Which is really interesting. Was it a cold, was it a cold email or was it through a network? Through a network, yeah, which is, the, which is always the right way, right? Um, it, it really helps a lot uh, yeah. to validate. And actually, that was through, the introduction to me was through TTB in Hong Kong, which is a, which is a, a friend of mine, former colleague at CLSA, who, who joined them and then one of their colleagues there. So great, great shop in Hong yeah. Kong. Yeah. And look, I mean, I think the, the conversation was pretty clear that they had grown with the benefit of similar sort of strategic assets, meaning to say, You know, they have this kiosk in which they can issue a card within five minutes, do a full KYC inside a supermarket or just outside the supermarket where you can go and linked into the loyalty program of the supermarket, like phenomenal wow. and added millions of customers already in that format. We're like, well, we have supermarkets, we have a loyalty program and we have a banking license, you know, like, yeah. and we're gonna, we can apply for another one as well. Like this is interesting, right? Like we should look at this. And so the conversation kind of pursued actually at a very strategic level at the CEO level of the group. Um, and then we kind of pursued it from a, from a dual perspective, looking at investment and the, uh, the joint venture. And so that was where the process ran. Jojo Malolos was the last year on that as, as the CEO executive sponsor. Um, and I think it was, it was a learning process in some ways because digital banks, you know, have raised a lot of capital, have made, you know, obviously a lot of paper money from a valuation standpoint, but yeah. during last year, you're probably aware that a number of companies and a number of digital banks were seeing somewhat downright valuations, right? Because of inflated rates of per customer valuations of thousand bucks per person, whatever it might be. And so there was obviously some sensitivity around COVID saying, how should we really build this strategy? Uh, but anyway, look, we ran two effectively streams as investing stream, as also part of the joint venture stream. Um, And it was a very well-coordinated process. Again, the team at, um, at times incredibly efficient, very well-coordinated and, and really supported incredibly in this, this process for the joint venture. Um, there was an example, I'll give you one example of what I was so impressed with this company, nothing confidential, but like, I remember asking them for like cohort data on you know, activation rates at kiosk versus digital channels um, by time over the last 18 months. Um, and the sort of curve as to, you know, utility over time for those co cohorts. Actually, you know, not particularly difficult, but it takes a lot of data to drive yeah. that and it takes time to pull up the charts yeah. and data sets. Yeah. And I, I remember having that conversation with Dietmar Boma, who's their chief analytics officer, just a, a brainiac, a really nice guy. And, and Dietmar says, yeah, yeah, okay. And I think it was the next morning that I had an entire report Uh, for all of that data set. And it was just phenomenal. I was like, wow, beautifully yeah. organized, incredibly um, precise with the data points yeah. and with explanations that were really clear. And I'm like, wow, this is a really class A outfit because they yeah. understood the importance of data and driving their decision-making. And really importantly, they were able to extract that data in a efficient manner, right? Yeah. And sometimes, you know, startups are obviously uh, constrained in capacity to that infrastructure to support that type of data analysis is really critical to build from early stages, right? Um, yeah, so I was, I was just, I was, uh, I was amazed. And I was like, okay, that's pretty good, right? And beyond the, beyond the data that was supportive, right? It was yeah. really good to, to actually see um, how they respond to these things, right? Because the behavior through a process is also important. So somebody doesn't respond to an information request for three weeks and then gets back to you and saying, I've been busy. Yeah. You always have a few red flags. You're like, are they organized? Are they not organized? Are they? Could they give me a holding response earlier? The whole process actually itself matters, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, that's beautiful, man. It reminds me of the good old cohort analysis days. Um, we had like a yes. AI guy, like a business intelligence dude that uh, that was a master in uh, mathematics uh, to do that for us. Uh, but, exactly. Yeah, but I can imagine. I mean, for you as an investor, you want to know that your your potential investor or potential guys that you're investing in are on top of their game and know what they're doing, right? So that supports. Uh, Chanel, one final question I have for you. Uh, we, we fast forward in the future, right? Somewhere in the near future, I'm uh, Googling your name. Uh, I cannot find anything except uh, for three lessons that you uh, want to leave the world with because uh, there's no, nothing on LinkedIn. There's no track record of your career. There's no investments, no angel investments. There's nothing I can see except these three lessons 
that you uh, you want to leave the world with as a as a message? What would those three things be? Wow, Andrew, I wish you'd give me that question pre. Uh, that's that's a good one. I, you know, look, I have changed my career a couple of times, right? And so I think one of the things is don't let the past define the future, right? Like it's really important to me, like this idea that you can constantly be on a learning journey, that you can constantly be improving, that you can constantly kind of put yourself out there. Yeah. Um, it's great, right? I, I, and so the second uh, part of that journey is like ask a lot of questions, mm. right? ask a lot of questions. I think the worst thing to be is to be the quiet person in the room that doesn't ask questions, right? Because like, either you're super smart and maybe you don't need to, but if you're at all like me and most people I know, it's like you learn so much more and so much faster by engaging with people and asking questions, right? Um, these might be the same three slogans, by the way, I put up for my son uh, who's four and a half years old, but ask lots of questions, really important. So don't let your past dictate the future. Ask lots of questions. I think perhaps the, the third one would be you know, find time to make balance in your life. Like the last year for me has been, you know, everyone's had a tough time in COVID. We've been very fortunate in Singapore, but I've actually found that for the first time, perhaps in like 20 years, I've actually found some balance. I'm not, you know, I'm kind of taking my time to, to write my little, you know, personal memo every day that helps me focus on what I do. Um, try and play you know, a bit of sport and exercise that you wouldn't see it by looking at me necessarily a few times a week um and try and spend time with your family where you can right because it's really important so that finding that balance i think is really really critical beautiful beautiful uh good points good points uh chanel i thank you so so much for sharing your wisdom uh being on being candid you know about about everything that you do uh thanks again for your time really appreciate it and i hope to see you soon Andrew, a pleasure thanks so much all right bye thank you so much for listening to the masters of cashflow podcast if you enjoyed this episode, then please share this with a friend that you think would be inspired. Also, make sure to subscribe to the Matters of Cashflow podcast over on Apple and Spotify. And I'd really appreciate if you can leave a rating and review on Apple and let me know what your biggest takeaway is of this episode. I want to leave you with this final thought. Napoleon Hill once said, if you cannot do great things, do small things in a great way. That's what I wish for you, that everything that you do, you'll do it with greatness. Thanks so much for spending time with me today and I hope to see you in the next episode.